Hello, welcome to Metaphorically Speaking with Delia Delore, the show that explores the cultural impact of commonly used phrases around the world and how they shape our perspectives and societies. I hope you started 2021 in a positive and peaceful way. I started the new year with more reminiscing than ever. I guess working with metaphors had a huge part of it all. It made me recall many childhood memories and adult ones too, like resolutions and plans. And I'm sure you've been in that boat where you're thinking, oh gosh, it's a new year. I've got to get certain things done. I have to go to the gym. I have to start this book. It's always a great time of the year, but our plans don't always go as planned. My team and I decided to kick off 2021 with the phrase, you can't build a bridge during a flood. And I'm sure you've not heard it that way before. And that's because there is a very intimate reason for that. So stay with us and you'll understand why. From mixing cement in thunderstorms to a strange phenomenon of young people sequestering themselves for years in Japan, we've got a lot to cover. So without further ado, let's begin. This week on Metaphorically Speaking, we're going in a slightly different direction with our chosen phrase. We asked this week's guest, Limbert Spencer OBE, what expression he would like us to explore this week. He responded, you can't build a bridge during a flood. He went on to tell me how this phrase shaped life and career choices for him. And I know you'll see a lot of his experiences in your life. But first, it's metaphor time. You can't build a bridge during a flood. You may be thinking that this isn't one you've heard before, or at least in common use. Nevertheless, we thought it was a perfect line to match the season's sentiment. Now that we are in the new year, lots of us are in a resolution-making mood. And this phrase offers sound advice in regards to being more productive. During some of our previous episodes, we discovered that metaphors and proverbs can often change their meaning over time. Even the way we say them can be altered to make them better suit us at the time that we use them. For example, curiosity killed the cat originated as care killed the cat, where care was used to express worry. Bet you didn't know that. I didn't either until our researcher Sabina came across it. If you stop to think right now, I bet some of you could find an example within your own families where a mum or family member expressed a unique saying which then got quickly adopted by others. With the advent of SMS language, so came the expression LOL, LOL. Before a true common knowledge of what this abbreviation meant, younger generations would use it in its proper sense, laugh out loud, whilst older generations got a little confused and took it to mean lots of love. I laugh because I know a few people are shaking their heads now thinking, oh my gosh, I've been doing that too. Well, one of our team members here at Metaphorically Speaking even told me about an unfortunately worded text from her mother that she received quite a few years ago. The text itself contained a grave message about her grandmother's death, but it finally ended with the words LOL or LOL, mom, which we all can understand isn't quite fitting, is it? And now you understand why I didn't say my team member's name. (laughs) With this new year, we often feel like it's a good idea to make promises to ourselves, 
Resolutions become the hot topic in the days after festive feasting and spending time with loved ones because that's all they talk about. They say, oh, you put on weight or something like that. And you think, oh gosh, I know it. I wish they didn't say it. Okay, I'm going to do it. So we say that we'll eat better. We'll exercise more. We'll stop smoking. We've said that a few times. We, we keep on saying it. But often when we make these promises, we open up ourselves to let ourselves down. Time passes. Gym memberships remain unused. Maybe even a couple of cigarettes have been smoked. We begin to see ourselves as failures. And so the New Year's blues sets in. The reason that you might be able to recall so many of these failures is because it's all part of the game. Let's think back to this week's proverb. What are the realistic problems with building a bridge during a flood? They take us from peninsula to island or cut a path from one mountaintop to the other. When it rains hard, or whether it doesn't, bridges must be built. Obviously, caution, planning and care is needed when creating any epic structure. Of course, safety too. And it's no different when we try to apply to the various resolutions or changes that we promise ourselves, especially in a new year. When tasks are tough to do, we don't always need to rush into them. A large part of ourselves feel that we let ourselves down when we don't meet the high expectations we've set, which then makes it harder to pick up again. So if we set a realistic path at that time, instead of making us feel confident to do it, we bet with ourselves that we can do the task as, as we set it. Does that make any sense to you? So I'm saying that if we built a realistic path, so if we said, okay, I'm going to lose one pound in two months, instead of saying, I'm going to lose five pounds in one month, then we will become confident as we start losing, you know, an ounce here, an ounce there, instead of beating up ourselves that we've set our standards so high, but yet we've lost a little weight and not much more time to lose more weight. Do you get what I mean? When we succeed at something, Maybe a good score in a test. Dopamine and endorphins are released from our brains and this chemical mixture makes us feel good and reasserts the moment with that feeling. This makes it easier for us to try the task again and when we do the task again, we gain confidence, although not all the time. And then our goal needs to be put on pause, much like building a bridge during a storm. The stronger the emotional reaction you have to some experience in your life. The higher the emotional quotient, the more you pay attention to the cause. And the moment the brain puts all of its attention on the cause, it takes a snapshot, and that's called a memory. So long-term memories are created from very highly emotional experiences. And so when you have an emotional reaction to someone or something, most people think that they can't control their emotional reaction. Well, it turns out if you allow that emotional reaction, it's called a refractory period, to last for hours or days, that's called a mood. According to Rebecca Solnit, author of A Paradise Built in Hell, The Extraordinary Communities That Arise in Disaster, the great majority of people remain calm, resourceful and altruistic when helping others in times of crisis. We improvise the conditions of survival beautifully, she said. But in this clip, I like how she encourages us to plan and provide a good example of what our guest, Lindbert Spencer, believes. I like Thomas Edison's idea that good luck often happens when opportunity meets with preparation. Deciding not to prepare is a choice, and of course, it's true that preparation does not guarantee success. However, Edison also wisely observed that genius is 1% inspiration, 
and 99% perspiration. So, a genius is often merely a talented person who has done all of his preparation. Our guest today is an accomplished speaker, educator, and personal development coach who even interviewed Margaret Thatcher. Lindbergh Spencer, OBE, is a founding director of the Center for Inclusive Leadership Limited. He has dedicated more than 30 years of his life to helping others and promoting inclusivity. Speaking to him was an absolute pleasure. It brought back so many wonderful memories of me learning to grow with his guidance. So, Limbert, thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to know a little bit more about you uh, in terms of how you got your OBE and how did you feel when you received it? Um, well, I got the OBE because of work that I've uh, done over the years, if not decades really, with the um, voluntary sector. So, it's my uh, not-for-profit work, my work with um, on non-executive boards and various uh, community organizations. Um, and, uh, well, how did I feel? I, I, I felt, you know, um, uh, validated. Uh, I felt that it was good that the work was uh, recognized. Um, and, you know, yeah, it, it, it felt okay, but it did feel a bit uh, strange in terms of uh, when you think about what it actually, what the words stand for, you know, uh, the British Empire, it's a little bit outdated in terms of the, um, the naming, uh, but if we stick to the initials, then uh, I can deal with that. Limbert, we've seen efforts to include diversity uh, in many things, especially here in the US. Do you see evidence of that happening in the UK? And also, I'd be interested to know what your definition of diversity is. Yes, I, I think that uh, there's sometimes a bit of a misnomer that um, the, you know, the, the diversity and inclusion agenda uh, is very much uh, a US uh, initiative and they are the, the masters of this and so on, um, and that the UK are struggling to catch up. I don't see it quite like that. I think the US are a bit like a curate's egg, uh, good in parts, um, and some of the best things uh, are, are quite good. But some of the things that aren't so good are, for me, uh, much worse than they are in the UK and sometimes in other parts of the world. There's that real gap in terms of uh, quality of dealing with this, uh, this agenda. Um, I think that there has been greater momentum in, uh, in, in this last 12 months um, brought about by the, um, you know, the death of George, George Floyd and the um, Black Lives Matter movement. Um, but I think that there is a lot of confusion, um, both amongst um, inclusion and diversity practitioners, I have to say, as well as within organizations who are wanting to make a change, in that there is a big confusion between uh, diversity and inclusion, often because it's thought about as though it were a thing. You know, we're going to do diversity and inclusion. Whereas in, in, in all respects, for me, it's two different things. So for me, diversity is simply difference. It's just difference. And we are different in a whole variety of ways. Obviously, color, ethnicity, nationality, language, accent, 
um, sexual orientation, gender, uh, disability, uh, and so on. All of the things, if you like, where we are used to having legislation or anti-discrimination legislation of one sort or another. But we're also different in terms of the way we think, the way we look, the way we dress, our interests, uh, our job aspirations, where we are in the hierarchy, uh, and all of those things go to make up uh, our uniqueness when we're part of a team or in the workplace. And that uniqueness is what adds value. But, and it's a big but, we only get the value if two or more people are present, i.e. we have diversity. We only get the value if we feel included. Uh, and that's about uh, feeling uh, respected, valued, trusted, safe, and, and having a sense of belonging. And I think unless we're clear that there are two different things, we can go off chasing diversity uh, and not understanding uh, that we have an organization or a team or indeed a nation where people don't feel included. So it's a bit like building a house on the sand, really. Uh, we build the diversity house, but if, unless we've got uh, strong foundations of inclusion, the whole thing's going to tumble down. I've heard you <laughs> define diversity many times. And every time you seem to just get it, I wouldn't say get it better, but it just sinks down into me again and again. And you just have, I, I think that you could actually write, you know, sometimes you see all these little quotes and these little uh, books on different things. You could write variations of the definition of diversity, which leads me to uh, asking you about um, our metaphor. It took you a while to come up with one that had a lot of meaning. You had lots of them, but this one had a lot of meaning. And my researchers had problems looking for it. But of course, I had to say to them, it's because it's your metaphor. It's your take on a metaphor. So the, the metaphor that you uh, use very often is you can't build a bridge during a flood. How did you come up with this metaphor and why do you seem to use it as often as you do? Well, I came up with it um, during the um, the nineteen eighties, the late eighties, where there were or mid eighties, I should say, where there were um, uh, uh, riots or uprisings, uh, as some people would have it, in the north of well, not just in the north of England, actually, it travelled around the country. But I was working in um, in the northwest of uh, England, in uh, in Manchester, and working around police community. Uh, relations, and it was clear to me uh, at that time that there was a, a lot of people on both sides of the argument, if you like, who wanted there to be some kind of conversation, who wanted dialogue. But the uh, the tension was so great, there was so much going down in terms of mistrust and actual uh, violence and strife on the street that we couldn't have the dialogue. We couldn't, as it were, build a bridge uh, because the flood waters were too high. There was too much going on for us to build a flood. Um, the problem was, though, um, you know, several weeks after things began to quieten down, or if you like, the flood waters subsided, uh, enthusiasm for building a bridge seemed to wane. Uh, nobody was interested in bridge building anymore, pretty much because 
word didn't seem to be need for the bridge there because the waters had subsided. Um, and it just felt to me, A, you, you can't build a bridge during a flood. You have to build the bridge whilst the waters are low. And that takes energy, that takes commitment, and that takes a lot of uh, persuasion uh, because uh, people are saying, well, you know, why do you need a bridge? <laughs> There's no flood. Wow. And how do you interpret that or include that, I should say, in your seminars? Well, it's not so much in the seminars that it gets included, but if you like, in my consulting work, when I'm working with an organization who, for instance, uh, might be having challenges between the leadership of the organization and uh, an affinity group, you know, uh, a group concerned with gender issues or, or, or ethnicity, um, who are saying, you know, you're not taking any notice of us, you're ignoring us, therefore we are going to withdraw our uh, uh, commitment uh, from involvement with you at a strategic level. And I'm working with one such organization right now. Um, and, you know, uh, I have to point out to both sides that, look, we know that we need to build a bridge here, uh, but we can't build a bridge during the flood. So we have to find a way of actually having the waters subside. We have to lower the temperature. We have to find a way of um, getting our people on both sides of the divide, as it were, uh, to lower uh, the, the, the tension bar so that we can begin to put in uh, foundations for building the bridge. And that metaphor lands quite well, but that's when the work begins, once we've got people to understand that actually uh, you, you can't build a, a bridge that's going to be sustained at the height of, uh, uh, of the tension or the quarrel that's going on. And what would you say have been your challenges when you are working as a consultant? Well, I suppose the challenge is always, especially in the environment I've just described, uh, to um, retain the credibility of the different parties, um, whilst at the same time um, being authentic in interacting with them uh, when I'm hearing them saying things about the other um, stakeholders that are perhaps misguided or untrue. Um, so I have to, uh, the challenge is for me to uh, respect their perspective, but help them to see that there might be other perspectives on the same issue. And what about your delivery of so perhaps maybe within your seminars or within your consultancy. I think you told me once uh, about uh, people um, asking you, how did you get it to be that way? In terms of, you know, you're putting the work in and you wish that people kind of gave you some feedback on the work that you're putting in. They just seem to think that everything is wonderful. Can you remember you saying something to me along those lines? Yes, it's about um, when, when people uh, ask how I've done what I've whatever it is, you know, I might have they might have thought I've done something reasonably well, and they say, well, you know, how did you do that? Uh, and I'm not always quite sure uh, because it's um, it, it's a natural thing for me to do, 
And because nobody has ever been specific about um, telling me precisely what I did and how it landed for them, rather than just saying, oh, that was good, um, it, it's hard to then figure out what you've done if, in fact, all you've done is to just be yourself. Um, so it, you, it, it's, if you don't know what you've done, it's hard to improve on it uh, and it's hard to do it somewhere else uh, because it's just part of who you are. So it's always made me um, really value uh, feedback and recognize the importance of giving people feedback with regard to those things that they do well, as well as giving people feedback in terms of the things that they do not so well, which we kind of do all too frequently, to be honest. What drove you to develop and co-found the Windsor Fellowship? Do you feel that the charity is needed more than ever in these pressing times? Well, the Windsor Fellowship, um, gosh, it's, um, it's pretty old now. Um, it's set up in the mid, mid to late 80s, wasn't it? Late 80s. Um, it's absolutely needed. Um, it's, it's coming back to the bridge. It's the bridge between two conversations, quite literally. Um, back in the late 80s, uh, there was a conversation going on in the UK primarily amongst um, minority ethnic graduates, uh, basically saying, you know, we, we would uh, love to get involved in some of the, 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 the high-profile senior civil service departments as graduate trainees or or, or go into the city, big banks, or, or go into the corporate world, but we know they don't want us. Um, and those very same organizations, uh, I was hearing their conversation at the top of those organizations, granted, saying, you know, we wish we could get more uh, minority ethnic graduates, uh, but they don't apply. Um, so the Windsor Fellowship was created uh, quite literally, as a bridge between those two conversations. Uh, and in this particular environment, it wasn't a flood so much as people saying, we really want to cross this divide. And so there was um, quite a receptive environment, uh, the, the opportunity to put down foundations on both sides of the metaphorical river uh, was actually quite strong. And, and so uh, that bridge uh, which we called the Windsor Fellowship, was built. Um, and it's called the Windsor Fellowship because actually it came out of uh, a high-profile conference hosted by uh, the Duke of Edinburgh at the Windsor, Windsor Castle, uh, the Windsor Conference Centre there. Um, and um, it led to uh, a couple of us, three of us, sitting down for two or three months, um, mulling over what we could do in order to bridge these conversations. And the Windsor Fellowship was the outcome. And what about your name, Lindbergh? Where did that come from? Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, it came from my mother, primarily. Um, she, had, uh, she, she heard the name and she liked it. Uh, it was the name of um, a professional footballer at the time in Jamaica. And um, he subsequently became a... Um, a football commentator, uh, and then a pundit, and then an anchor person for the news. So I got to see him quite a lot on television. 
uh, and his name was Limbert Delapendi. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm named after a uh, uh, professional footballer slash um, uh, news anchor. Okay, and you took some of his traits because, of course, you uh, presented as well uh, here in the UK. So you took that trait from him, at least. Clearly. I mean, uh, I, I didn't become a professional footballer. I played a bit of football. Uh, I did become uh, what these days they would call an elite athlete, but uh, uh, not in terms of soccer. Yeah. But what was it like um, being the first black child in your junior school? And did this bumpy start give you the drive that you have today? Um who knows? I mean, it's uh, it's obviously part of uh, making me who I am. Um, uh, I suppose looking back, I, it's hard to tell just how bumpy it was. It, it certainly, I do recall a bit of an altercation early on in my school days with uh, somebody. I think it must have been name calling or or something that uh, didn't land well with me, um, and uh, I, I kind of. Uh, took him to task in a physical manner in the cloakroom, I seem to recall. Um, uh, but that kind of positioned me as somebody who <laughs> uh, it would be best not to mess with. Um, uh, but it did mean, I suppose, that I, I got involved in things. I, I was involved in pretty much all of the teams going from, you know, fairly pedestrian chess through to football and cricket and, and various other things. Um, but yeah, I suppose it made me um, uh, fairly broadly based in terms of my interests and things that I was, was involved in. Okay. And was there any particular point in your life where you wish that you had never immigrated from your home in the Caribbean, in Jamaica? You know, I, I can't say that I've um, consciously thought that, um, especially uh, in, in later life. Uh, I would have. Uh, I guess there must have been sometimes uh, in, uh, as a child, um, uh, perhaps in the winter when it's cold and dark, <laughs> and uh, in those days miserable fog and smog, uh, wondering what I was doing here. But I came here so young, um, and I suppose so uh, full of hope and expectation, and saw so many things that were very different. Um, that there wasn't a great deal of hankering after uh, the past. Mm -hmm. um, also, there were things that were very much um, uh, familiar to me. I mean, I, 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 I'm an only child, so my, my mum and dad were here. Uh, so, you know, that I, I wasn't hankering after them. I hadn't grown up with my um, grandparents around me, for instance, they lived in the country, so I wasn't necessarily hankering after them. Uh, we, we went to uh, the Salvation Army in Jamaica, uh, and when we came here, we just went to the Salvation Army here, and it felt pretty much the same, you know. Uh, so the, the things that I had around me were, were relatively familiar. I mean, I think that there was one thing that I was thankful for, I don't know about hankering after, but was thankful for, was the fact that my father had uh, soft hands, because if his hands had been tougher, um, we probably would have migrated to uh, America. Uh, but uh, <laughs> he was rejected when he applied to go to the States, uh, because his hands were too soft, and they figured that uh, uh, it would take too long 
for him to toughen up to work in the uh, cotton fields, quite literally, uh, and therefore he was turned down, for which I'm eternally grateful. Wow, that's amazing. I've, I've never heard something like that before. That's amazing. Okay. Lambert, <laughs> um, do you believe in the saying, fake it till you make it, especially when someone's considering management and leadership? Yeah, I, I think I would probably um, put it slightly differently because faking it, 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 it doesn't land too, um, too easily. But I do get the, um, uh, the, the, the point. Uh, for me, it would be about, you know, uh, ad adopting it until it becomes a, you know, consciously adopt it until it becomes a habit. Um, so, you know, um, it goes alongside sayings like be the change you want to see. Um, be be the kind of person you aspire to. So if you want to be um, uh, uh, a senior manager and you're now a middle manager, then notice what senior managers do. Notice the responsibility that senior managers take on and begin to take some of those things on um, before you get there. So when you get there, when you get the promotion and when you tell your friends, they'll say, oh, Goodness, I thought you already were a senior manager because of the way you have been behaving, because of how you've been acting. Uh, so uh, not so much fake it till you make it, but adopt the principles, the way of behaving and so on. Uh, and I believe that very much because being spending most of my life as a uh, in my own business or as a as a sole trader, um, my position has always been to uh, I'll never I'll never get more for what I do until I do more than what I'm getting. Uh, and, and that, I think, is that same principle can apply in the corporate world. So if, if, if you want a pay rise, uh, then do more than you're doing now, rather than say, I'll do more when I get the rise. Yes, I think a lot of people <laughs> do think of it that way. They go to the boss and they say, I can do the job. I can do it. I want you know, more pay. I can do it. Uh, but yes, if they prove that they have been doing it, as you're saying, as you're suggesting, then it's they're more likely to be successful in their request. But um, lastly, Lynn, but what would you say has been one of the key driving forces in your life? There may be many, but does one of them stand out or maybe a couple stand out? Well, I suppose the, uh, as I say, I'm a member of the Salvation Army, so that whole um, uh, being brought up in a Christian home, uh, a sense of... Uh, of, of giving and thinking about other people has been part and parcel of, uh, of my upbringing. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to um, make a living out of enabling and supporting uh, others in a variety of ways, whether those others have been, you know, um, uh, in the local community or whether they've been a, a multinational business. Um, for me, the same principle applies um what can i do to enable and support them in achieving the aims and ob objects that they uh, that they have in mind so that's been a very strong driver and it's been supported and underpinned by um i guess a a, a key mentor uh, of mine who's you know is six foot six a guy called bill daniel he was a circus clown literally larger than life and uh, he 
uh, was my youth worker, as well as the kind of ran the Sunday school as well. But he was my youth worker, and I modelled, I suppose, myself on uh, what what Bill was about and how Bill supported other people. Um, and you know, the older I get, the more I realise and recognise uh, the power of that mentoring that I received from my late teens uh, and into my um, uh, early twenties. Uh, and I suppose that that's been uh, a really, really key part of um, uh, of uh, making me who I am. Well, I'd like to thank Bill, and of course, I'd like to thank you for joining me today. <laughs> Bill has made you, as you say, a little of, of who you are, and who you are has given you all those achievements and given you the value that you 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 know so often speak about and of course incorporated in your life so but thank you so much for joining me thank you Delia. it's been a pleasure this week's metaphor allows us to explore how people go about making plans sometimes we get so wrapped up in the here and now that we forget to plan for the future unless you're a squirrel, of course. Anyway, let's have a look at how people respond to disasters and crisis around the world. Between Christmas 2020 and now, we have been provided with numerous opportunities to understand how people react in crisis around the world. We've seen the mentalities of different nations. We've seen the countries that come together and the ones that don't. We've witnessed those with contingency plans and no plans at all. Sometimes it felt like every man for himself. You thought I was referring to coronavirus, right? But actually, I was talking about what people do when there is a metaphorical flood in their lives. In my experience, I have found that although having strong foundations in place is crucial in a crisis, it's usually not until you need that extra support that you notice if you have it in place or not. What was it that Joni Mitchell said? seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone or how about support like alvin slaughter prayed for there are so many phrases that can be linked to our phrase this week for example i grew up with the mantra fail to prepare prepare to fail and it's largely true I don't turn up to my interviews unprepared. I conduct rigorous research on my guests. I think about the questions I'm going to ask them and all the while I keep my ear tuned in to the rest of the world. If I didn't prepare, the interview would flop. And it's the same with so many other aspects of day-to-day -day life. And although I don't always agree with this philosophy, it doesn't mean that you can't also adopt the position, I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. Because in most cases, you can build a bridge during a flood. When loneliness sleeps in like the tide around you, you reach out. When there's a natural disaster, you fight for your life. If you're hungry, you eat. The point is, if you do nothing, nothing happens. Because people have the expectation sometimes that if you just stay there, it'll come to you wrong. In Nigeria, there is a proverb that beautifully emphasizes this. In a moment of crisis... The wide build bridges and the foolish build dams. What this proverb is saying is that when you build a dam to stop a flood, all you'll be able to do is see the flood. 
It speaks to the importance of facing challenges and transcending them as opposed to getting stuck. Because if you don't try to bridge your way out of a situation, of course, you're not going to find a way out. Moving on to a fascinating phenomenon now in Japan, hikimori. Japan has a problem. Hundreds of thousands of young men who lock themselves away in their bedrooms, sometimes not leaving their homes for decades. They're known as hikikomori, people who have completely withdrawn from society. In one extreme case, a 17-year-old boy returned home from school one day, walked into his family's kitchen and refused to leave. His family's solution? To build a new kitchen. But there is something that seems to be helping. Ayako is a rental sister. She and Atsuko are part of a specialised group of women available for hire who are getting paid to help Japan's most reclusive young men get out of their bedrooms and back into society. Despite having a fairly efficient healthcare system, Japan lags behind in providing both awareness and support for mentally ill people. The exceptional existence of hikimori can definitely be seen as a situation of personal crisis. The hikimori cuts off all ties with anyone who is not a member of their household and effectively burns all bridges. If the expression you can't build a bridge during a flood is true, then surely once someone is hikimori, there is no hope for them anymore. Thankfully, this is not the case. And this is not just a handful of people. It's estimated that there are about half a million people living as hikikomori in Japan. But because there can be a lot of shame associated with having a hikikomori child, many families keep the condition a secret and struggle to get proper help. That's where the rental sisters come in. The idea was dreamed up by an organisation called New Start, and it seems to be working. These young women don't have any formal medical qualifications, but families pay about 100,000 yen a month for weekly, hour-long visits. That's just under $900. Their job is to try to coax the hikikomori out of isolation and back into regular life. The world is full of stories of people reaching out to help one another when they're isolated or overcome by crisis. Even in places like Japan, where reaching out and bridging the gap is harder because of society's aversion to standing out. Another time where metaphorical bridges were made during a not-so-figurative flood was Hurricane Katrina, the Category 5 hurricane that devastated New Orleans in 2005. Hundreds of volunteers, later dubbed the Louisiana Cajun Navy, rallied to rescue more than 10,000 people stranded and trapped by the floodwaters. They announced, anybody wants to go help the people of New Orleans? Please come to the Acadiana Mall. Louisiana journalist Trent Angers told CBS News they expected 24 to 25 boats, between 350 and 400 boats and people showed up. Here's an audio bite from Dave Spizali, who literally built a bridge during that terrible storm. We're watching these images on television. A call goes out to residents in southwest Louisiana for flat-bottom boats, which is like asking uh, the question, does anybody have a barbecue pit in South Louisiana? So 400 boats uh, lined up out at the Acadiana Mall at 4 o'clock in the morning in Lafayette and started a uh, convoy uh, down the highway en route to New Orleans. This was organized uh, by a group, uh, a friend of mine told me about it, and so we just started this uh, Lafayette flotilla uh, en route 
you know, to New Orleans. As we came back, there was a group of nine men waving a flag at us, uh, uh, flagging us down with a, with a towel. And so uh, we approached cautiously. We had been warned that uh, there had been a lot of people who had picked up people who then wanted the boat that they were traveling on, and you needed to check out the motivation in the eyes of those who were flagging you down. So we idled about 25 yards away from them, looked at them, this is nine able-bodied men, but they just wanted out, you know. So we, we came up, we put all nine on board that had 11 people on board my boat. It turned out that they were Palestinians who had come to this city to open up a, a convenience store and a chain of little convenience stores, 7-Eleven type stores. So when they left, they walked from New Orleans East, which was the place that was struck the worst, along the lakefront to an area called West End, and that's where we picked them up. Their satchels were full of everything that you would find in a convenience store. Red Bull drinks, Marlboros, candy bars, and they wanted to give it all to us. And we were telling them, the payoff for us is picking you guys up. I mean, we really want to do this. This makes us coming here a success, you know? And, and it wasn't fraught with any danger, really, or anything like that. This is what we wanted to be doing, you know? And I think a lot of people around the country felt the same way, you know? If I could be doing something tangible, I'd do it. I think that Dave Spizali's actions that day go to show that although having solutions in place before a problem arises, we cannot always be prepared. Sometimes we just have to cross a bridge when we come to it. We put one foot in front of the other and deal with the problem when and if it arises. And when we arise, come hell or high water, we'll do our best to build the bridges we need. There is a Hungarian proverb that states, where there is no bridge, the smallest plank is of great value. Well, I think that says it all, really. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter where you're from, people are inherently good and do tend to reach out to one another in times of crisis. Sadly, that's all the time we have for today. I hope you enjoyed learning about this week's very personal metaphor, you can't build a bridge during a flood. Remember it as you plan. I hope that it inspired you to rethink any plans or make any changes that you need to in your life. A researcher once said that procrastination is, hands down, our favorite form of self-sabotage. Think about this quite deeply. Is it possible that you're doing it to yourself? If you like this program, please join us on our social media pages at Metaphorically Speaking Delia and tell your friends about it. And if you've a metaphor that you'd like us to research, please let us know. Thank you for joining us. See you next week. Keep safe. I'm Delia Delore. Bye for now.